Well, Judy and I would like to thank everyone for the last week in particular. People have been so helpful from helping us with the moving and practicality and cleaning and all that sort of thing. And Friday night's farewell was uh, just such a pleasant time. You know, people were very kind and generous and would like to thank you. We acknowledge those that may be here through live stream. A number of folk gave their apologies for Friday and for today because they have COVID and are self-isolating. So uh, acknowledge those folk too that are watching from live stream. Just over four years ago, Judy and I arrived, and that was the arrangement that greeted us. We came here at the beginning of autumn, and you may notice some, uh, some various things in that that were very central. Got the grapes in the top uh, left, got some apples and pears, and you might not see, but just under the Bible there are some cherries. What a wonderful welcome to come to Central. But do you notice what's here today? If we go back, notice the fruit. They don't look like fruit from Central. Kiwi fruit and avocados are exactly where Judy and I are going to, my understanding is that it's kiwi fruit picking season in May and that um, Judy could be very well gainfully employed if she wanted to. <laughs> picking kiwi fruit as she did when she was, I think, 18 or 19, when kiwi fruiting back in the Bay of Plenty. We notice also that we have the lovely central colours that you never get in the Bay of Plenty quite like that. But I tell you what the Bay of Plenty has, and it has this. It has amazing greenery with the ferns and the bush. Something You look into the hills and for some reason they're not brown. They're lovely and green. And so there are some other wonderful things there, including a couple of travel cases wishing us well. So isn't that a tremendous way to welcome and to farewell Judy and I? It's greatly appreciated. What's common to both of those pictures? The Bible. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we're humbled. Um, that uh, you choose to reveal yourself in the pages, even though it looks to many people like it's just ink on paper, it's more than that, as your Holy Spirit makes these words come alive. And that's our prayer today, that as we read your word, as we hear your word, that your Spirit will make these words come alive to us and Jesus more real. Through his name we pray. Amen. So who is Jesus? And this is the question that Mark challenges us with as we read his gospel. All the time, he's presenting Jesus. He's telling us what he said, showing us what he did, and then he's saying, but who do you think Jesus is? And to help us with this quest, Mark even shows us what other people thought of Jesus. And so the majority of the people in Jesus' day, those crowds that had seen his miracles and heard his teaching, they thought he was Elijah who came again, or another great prophet. King Herod thought he was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Even the religious leaders who should have known better thought Jesus was in league with the devil. And then there were the disciples who knew him best, who came to believe him to be the Messiah. But what about Jesus himself? Who did he think he was? You see, he was evasive when he was asked directly even remaining silent when he was questioned at his trial. And so he did not really want people to know what he thought or who he thought he was. However, in the parable that was read today, we have the self-disclosure of Jesus. In this parable, we see who Jesus thought he was. And so we're going to open up this 
so that we can help us understand who we think Jesus is. So, Mark 12, the parable starts like many parables. Mark 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. How appropriate is that to central, especially at this time of year, isn't it? As he plants a vineyard. But before that, of course, we think of the parables. Jesus spoke in parables all the time. In fact, people love to hear his parables, but few understood what they mean. Even the disciples would come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, what did you mean by that? He used stories very differently than modern-day preachers. Modern preachers like myself, we use a story to help understand the Bible so that you can see clearly what God is saying. Jesus did not use parables like that at all. Jesus has used parables to probe what people thought, to test how close people were to the kingdom of God. And so take the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the tax collector prays a humble prayer and is forgiven, but the Pharisees are arrogant and he is not forgiven. And the crowds thought this story was wonderful though they were very surprised that the most sinful person they could speak, think of was forgiven. They really had no idea, but those close to the kingdom understood and would reflect and be challenged in their own prayer life. Jesus used parables to test and to probe how close people were to the kingdom of God. And so we need to prepare to dig a bit deeper. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And just like we've seen over the last couple of months here in Otago with the vineyards, isn't it been wonderful to see the summer green change to the autumn yellows and oranges? For the harvest is in for most vineyards in central Otago and it's time to prune and get ready for next season. And just like the parable here, there are some vineyards where the owner does not live in central but leases or has managers to look after the vineyard and to collect the harvest. And so in Jesus' parable, after the owner plants the vineyard, he travels away and leases out the vineyard to be managed by some farmers. And as per terms of the lease, when it was harvest time, the owner was to receive payment, including some of the crop. However, as with many of Jesus' parable, there's an unexpected twist. We see this in verse 3. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one was killed. He sent many others, and some of them they beat, others they killed. And don't we become more and more appalled as each servant goes to get the owner's, the owner's goods, the owner's some of the crop? Um, first one is beaten and sent away empty-handed, and this moves on to a more intense struck and treated shamefully, until finally the third servant is even killed. And it doesn't stop there because the owner sends more servants and they are beaten and some of them are killed. And out of greed and self-interest, the tenants act shamefully towards the owner and wickedly to the servants. 
Eventually, the owner feels he has only one option left. Verse 6. The owner had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. Now let's take a bit of a break at this point of the story and just spend some time working out who each of the characters of this parable are. Who are the tenants? Who are the servants? Who is the owner? And who is the son that we're about to be introduced to? Uh, Well, the clue that unlocks this parable is found in verse 12, and it's where the Pharisees, after the reaction of the Pharisees and the religious leaders after they hear the parable, verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. You see, as religious leaders hear the parable, they realize they're the ones being portrayed as the tenants. They realize that Jesus is embarrassing them by implying explicitly even that they are the tenants. And why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus put the religious leaders in that position of being the wicked tenants? Well, that's because Jesus knows the plotting of their hearts. If we go back a page to Mark chapter 11, verse 18, what's happened is that Jesus has gone into the temple. Uh, he's cleaned it out of money changes and the sellers of animals, and he's challenged by the religious leaders. And after he responds in verse 18, we see this, Mark eleven eighteen. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And so, the religious leaders, they've been plotting murder in their hearts against Jesus, and then they hear the parable of the tenants who are doing exactly the same thing, and they realize that Jesus is pointing the finger at them. So now that we realize that the tenants are the religious leaders standing watching Jesus, then it becomes clear who everyone else is. The servants are prophets of old, people like Elijah and Elijah, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These are the faithful servants who were sent by God but not listened to, and some were even killed. So the tenants are the religious leaders listening. The servants are prophets of old what about the owner who is the owner well it's God himself God owns the land it was he that planted the vineyard and there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7 which really fills this picture well and this is what Isaiah 5 7 says the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in He looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness but heard cries of distress. Isn't that interesting? In fact, part of me thinks that Jesus was reading Isaiah one day and read that verse and that's where he got the idea of the parable of the tenants. Well, that's speculation. But you see the connection, isn't it? God has planted the people of Israel in the land. So the people of Israel are his vineyard, the vines. But there is betrayal and bloodshed in the vineyard. really does point to this parable, doesn't it? And so there we have it. We have the first three or four characters. The tenants are the religious leaders. The servants are the prophets of old, and God himself is the owner. And the people of God are the vines. What about the son? 
I'll read that verse again. In verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. And so who is this son? Well, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, for those who are close to the kingdom of God, this is Jesus revealing who he thinks he is. This is Jesus saying, this is who I am. I, the one speaking to you this parable, I am the son. I am the vineyard owner's son. I am the son of God. And for those who picked up on what Jesus was saying, they would be shocked because this is blasphemy. Blasphemy of the highest kind. Unless it's true. And of course, if it's true, it's not blasphemy. So is it true? Is Jesus God's own son? Is, it, is he who he is claiming to be in this parable? Well, Mark has prepared us for this self-disclosure. He's prepared us at least in two places. Let's go back to Jesus' baptism in Mark 1.11. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you am I well pleased. Well, God himself thundered down from the heavens, You are my son. And also on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark 9.7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Aren't those powerful witnesses that reinforces Jesus' claim in the parable that he is the vineyard owner's son, the son of God, his only son, and dearly loved? So let's jump back into the parable. What's going to happen to this beloved son? Jesus has revealed himself to be the son of God, but he's done so in the middle of high drama, in the middle of tension. So what's happening in verse 7 and 8 of Mark 12? But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It makes you draw breath, doesn't it? This outworking of greed and malice, this violence that has no justification, has no mitigating circumstances, can be portrayed by nothing less than unadulterated evil and wickedness to the lowest of the low. And when we recover from the shock, we can't help but say, what will happen? What will the vineyard owner do? Surely there will be justice met out that will be proportional to what's happened. And that's what happens in verse 9. What will then the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And surely everyone listening in the crowd would agree, except for maybe the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. And then Jesus does something very Jesus, something that he would do. Instead of explaining the meaning of the parable and maybe even pointing out the religious leaders for the hypocrites and the murderous plotters that they were, instead of doing that, he switches metaphor from horticulture to the construction industry. He brings in a verse that seems to be out of the blue, a wonderful verse from Psalm 118. And let's look at that. Or haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous 
in our eyes. And so the parable ends. But who listening could understand it? What about the crowd? Did they understand that what Jesus was saying? In all likelihood, they would have said, well, that's another really interesting story, Jesus. I wonder what that verse is you threw in at the end. The disciples, they might have had a better idea, for Jesus had told them three times earlier that he was going to die and raise from the dead. Maybe they were starting to piece that together. And even the religious leaders, though they understood that they were being got at, it's very unlikely that they understood what the passage about the cornerstone or the stone rejected becoming the cornerstone meant. So what did the stone that was rejected that then became a cornerstone, what, do, what does that mean? What does that tell us about Jesus' self-understanding? Well, this verse, this verse taken from Psalm 118, is a well-known messianic prophecy which means it was recognized in Jesus' day, as it is today, as referring to the Messiah, the Anointed One, that was to come. So notice what Jesus is doing there. He's making a clear connection between the rejected Son and the rejected Messiah. The owner's Son, who is killed and cast out, and the stone at the quarry that is rejected from the building. So Jesus not only is claiming in this parable to be the Son, but also the Messiah. That's how Jesus understood himself. I am the Son of God, the Son that was rejected by the farmers, by the vineyard workers, but I am also the Messiah, the stone that was rejected and cast out by the stonemason. So why does Jesus add this story of the stone being rejected to the end of this parable? Because he wants to let people know that the owner's son does not end up dead in a ditch. And that is not the end of the story. Now the parable wouldn't have been a parable if, if Jesus said, oh well the son in the ditch became alive again and came in and sorted people out. That's not how parables work. Jesus needed this to come and give people an understanding that in the same way that the son who was killed and rejected he would come back and put things right in a similar way that the stone that was rejected was eventually became the cornerstone, the cornerstone that made the temple secure. Jesus is ending this in a hope. And for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, we understand that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God and the Messiah the Son of God who is dearly loved, but also the long-awaited anointed one who will make us right with God. Now the other Gospels make this much more explicit, but Mark was the first Gospel that was written. And so you can imagine the original listeners sort of grappling with this. And we catch a glimpse of this wonderful father-son relationship a little later in Mark. For in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well that the tenants are about to take Jesus, kill him, and throw him out of the vineyard, Jesus in the garden prays this prayer in Mark 14, 36. He says, Abba, Father. How does Jesus understand himself? As the one who can say, Abba, Father. No other religious people, the religious leaders, ever address God as Abba, Father. 
And Abba is Aramaic. The common language that the Jewish folks spoke in Jesus' day was Aramaic, a form of Hebrew. Greek was sort of the language that the whole uh, empire spoke, a little bit like English is now. But Aramaic was the common language of Jesus and his followers. And Abba is a, an expression that children would use for their father, very similar to our expression dad or daddy. It can be used by young children or older children, but it was an expression of warmth and child-to-a-father relationship. But notice the rest of the prayer. Abba, Father, Jesus said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. So here, in this most intimate moment, Jesus expresses, Abba, Father, your will be done. And so here's the son. And even as he prays, we know the story. We know that Judas is coming with a bunch of murderous thieves, really, um, some soldiers and some other uh, not-so-reputable people, and they are going to grab him and they're going to kill him like the parable and they're going to throw him outside the city. Jesus knows this is about to happen and he says, Abba, Father, your will be done. And so we draw to a close our series on Mark. Who do you believe Jesus is? This is Mark's challenge to you and to I. Is Jesus just John the Baptist come back from the dead? Is he Elijah returned or a prophet? Or is Jesus in league with the devil? Is Jesus just a well-meaning rabbi who died a tragic death and merely inspires us today? Or is Jesus something more? And your response has eternal consequences. John 3 makes this clear. John 3, what a wonderful expression of the gospel tied up in one sentence. There's wonderful good news, but there's also a dire warning in John 3.16. Often we concentrate on the good news. Let's read that. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we rejoice that God loved us. We rejoice that God sent his son, and we rejoice that as we believe, we have eternal life. But do you notice the dire warning? The default for those who do not believe is that they perish. Eternal separation from God. And so who we think Jesus is has eternal consequences. For those who believe, the eternal consequences are great joy and delight in the presence of God. For those who don't believe, the eternal consequences are eternal separation from God and all good things. And so, the parable of the tenants, where the son is rejected, murdered and cast aside. However, it does not end there, because the stone rejected becomes the cornerstone. And this is marvellous in our eyes. It's wonderful that, isn't it? That's how that Psalm 18 verse 23 ends. And this is marvellous in our eyes. The stone that the stonemason rejected and put aside for the scrap heap, that was chosen to be the cornerstone. And so finally, I'll leave you with this challenge. Is Jesus marvellous in your eyes? Is he your joy? Is Jesus your chief delight? You see, in all my preaching here in Cromwell, 
it's been my aim to preach Christ in such a way that he becomes more marvellous in our eyes. To preach in such a way that even an atheist who was sitting here would say, with longing, I wish it was true. That's my aim as a preacher, to preach Jesus so wonderfully that even an atheist would say, I wish it was true, tell me more. And even the best of preachers cannot do this in his or her words. It's as the word of God is faithfully preached that the Holy Spirit takes these words and makes them alive in your hearts and in your minds. This is my prayer. The Holy Spirit will make Jesus more real, alive, and more marvellous in your lives. As I reflect on my time preaching here, ministry hand on heart, I can say that Jesus is more marvellous to me than when I first came here four years ago. When I came here four years ago, it was one of my aims that my ministry would be an outflowing of my devotional walk with Jesus. And I can say that I am closer to Jesus now than I was four years ago. And so I leave here with significant sadness as we go, with, with a sense of excitement to the next adventure. We're going to miss you desperately. But I know that I am closer to Jesus because I've been here, because of the people in this room, the people watching on live stream, the people I've connected with have helped me be closer to Jesus. And it's my prayer that I've helped you to walk closer with our Lord as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that parable of the tenants, how many times have we read that and thought, well, yes, and moved on? And yet it tells us so much about Jesus and who he thought he was. Your son, but also the Messiah, the cornerstone, the stone that was rejected, the son of the owner of the vineyard that was killed, yet the cornerstone that makes the temple, the people of God, secure. And as to Jesus, we give our hearts and our devotion. May we serve him, Lord, shoulder to shoulder alongside each other. Some of us are a bit nervous about where you're leading the church over the next few months and years or year or so, but I pray, Lord, that you will give confidence to the people in this room, that you'll bless the session and the other leaders, Lord, and, and that your spirit will continue to move, that there may be great rejoicing as more and more people come to know Jesus. And so, Lord, as we come to communion, as we come to the body and the blood, may you make Christ even more marvellous in our eyes. Through Jesus' name, amen.